Ah, everyone can finally breathe a sigh of relief. Valentine's Day is over. Whether you spent it wishing for a new boo or stressing about an appropriate gift for your significant other, it's a hectic holiday. Last year, for our Valentine's Day episode, I interviewed NC State students to see how they felt about the holiday. The consensus was it was an overly capitalist holiday, but discounted chocolates the next day were pretty awesome. So much for a holiday meant to celebrate love. But where did this infamous holiday originate? Since it's the day after Valentine's Day, I thought we should delve into some of the history of the holiday. There are a lot of different ideas about how the holiday came to be. February has long been celebrated as a month of love, and this tradition is thought to have a mix of Roman and early Christian origins. One of the most famous legends centers around St. Valentine. The Catholic Church officially recognizes multiple St. Valentines, which is where some of the confusion originates. Unfortunately, all of these saints were martyred. The first legend of St. Valentine takes place in 3rd century Rome, where Valentine was a local priest. Emperor Claudius II decided to outlaw marriage during the time because he believed that single men made better soldiers than married men with families. Valentine disagreed with the emperor and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Claudius discovered Valentine's defiance, he was sentenced to death. The second, more popular legend paints Valentine as a Christian hero who helps persecuted worshipers escape from Roman prisons. Valentine was eventually caught and imprisoned. While in jail, the story holds that he fell in love with the jailer's daughter, who visited him. On the day of his execution, he sent her a letter signed, Your Valentine, which, according to legend, is where the popular phrase started. Another idea about the origin of Valentine's Day was the Roman festival Luperci, held on February 15th, which was a fertility festival in honor of the founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus. During the festival, Roman priests would sacrifice a goat, then rip the hide into strips. The priests would then take to the streets with the hide strips and goat's blood, lightly slapping all the women in the town with the combination. Now I know what you may be thinking. This is super gross and totally unromantic, but Roman women actually welcomed it as it was thought to bring them fertility. Later in the festival, all the single women would place their names in a goblet and would be paired with a single man. These pairings often ended in marriage. Not unsurprisingly, the festival didn't sit well with the early Christians. In the fifth century, Pope Gelasius declared February 14th St. Valentine's Day in order to cover up the pagan holiday. The holiday wasn't associated with romance again until much later. During the Middle Ages, the romantic meaning of the holiday returned as it was believed that mid-February was the birds mating season and thus a time for love. Well, there you have it, the history of Valentine's Day. I'll leave it up to you guys to decide the true origins of the holiday. But anyways, happy Luperci. This has been Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Good afternoon, 88.1 WKNC. You're tuned in to Taste of the Triangle, your source for culinary insight and food culture in Raleigh and the surrounding area. I'm your host, Will Mayo, and this week I will be covering Fa 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 Noodle Kitchen and Bar, which is located on Glenwood Avenue in downtown Raleigh. Before I get into information about the restaurant, let me share some information about Fa. For those of you that are not familiar, Fa, spelled P H O, 
is a traditional Vietnamese dish that is actually typically eaten in the morning. Though pho is not technically pho without its rice noodles, most people judge pho by its broth. The broth in a traditional bowl of pho will be characterized by two things. First, a complex blend of spices that one might liken to those used to spice cider or wine. Second is a complete flavor profile of the meat used to create the broth, bones and all. The spices and meat combine with a few key vegetables to create a truly aromatic and delicious dish. Personally, I had never indulged in the Vietnamese dish prior to my visit at Pho 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 this weekend. However, when the house pho was placed in front of me, it was love at first waft. I could hardly contain my excitement as I patiently awaited the rest of my companion's food, and for a solid minute after its arrival, not a sound could be heard save for the slurping of noodles. The ability to hush my rambunctious lot is a testament to Pho Pho Pho's absolutely delicious food. The house pho is a hearty bowl containing many types of beef to include rare beef, beef balls, beef shank, beef tripe, and beef tendon, and of course the traditional rice noodles, vegetables, and spices. I highly recommend it if you've got quite an appetite, and even if this doesn't satisfy you, pho 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 also features a number of rotating craft beers, draft and otherwise. The featured cocktail this week at Pho 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 is the Asian Kilt, which is a fresh lime and Malibu drink with muddled jalapeno and Thai basil topped with ginger beer. The bar also runs about 10 other cocktails, a dozen or so wines, and a handful of sakis. There's also quite a fun atmosphere at Pho Pho Pho, no pun intended. 80s music and kung fu movies fill the room as you enjoy your meal with your friends. This, combined with their incredible waitstaff and amazing food, of course, make Pho 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 Noodle Kitchen and Bar another tasty slice of the Triangle's culinary pie. This has been Taste of the Triangle, and I'm your host, Will Mayo. Thanks for listening in, and keep it locked to 88.1 WKNC. Hello and welcome, I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. Two weeks ago, Delicate Steve dropped his first album in like forever, and ever since then, I've been dying to talk about it. Today is that day, and the album is This Is Steve by Delicate Steve. Oh, wait, I already said it's Delicate Steve. Oh well, times two then. So yeah, as always, first question is, just who is Delicate Steve? Well, as of this album, it's Who Are Delicate Steve, as what was once just a funky-looking guy in his guest bedroom recording crazy-sounding instrumental albums is now a few people in his guest bedroom recording crazy-sounding instrumental albums. To be precise, Delicate Steve is first and foremost the brainchild of forerunner Steve Marion, who in the past had been accompanied on tour by some of his best friends. Now, I can't find the names of those friends, but in a recent interview of Steve Marion about this album, I found out they've since become permanent band members and helped to inspire the sounds on this album. Which makes sense when you hear it, because this album is very different. More on that in a minute. First, let's talk about Delicate Steve's sound. 
This Is Steve is not actually the artist's first album, as you probably already gathered. It's actually their third, with a couple of split EP songs and a live album to boot. Steve's first album was called Wonder Visions and featured an incredibly apt album cover with Steve's illustrated profile superimposed onto a psychedelic sunburst of many colors. While Wonder Visions wasn't really psychedelic, it did have psychedelic influences that came through beautifully. Every album this band does is instrumental, and the first two were kind of funky, crazy-sounding guitar adventures. It's pretty much impossible to describe in words. The most I can really say is that it was a warm, soulful, psychedelia-influenced but laid-back album that probably sounds fantastic while you're high. Their second album, Positive Force, was very similar, but worked in new electronic influences that gave the whole album more of an out-of-this-world kind of sound. I think there was a lot of refinement and improvement on that album, even if every song wasn't exactly mind-blowing. Now, for proper reference, Wonder Visions came out in 2011. That was Steve's debut. A year later in 2012, that's when Positive Force dropped. And now here we are in 2017 with This Is Steve having dropped only two weeks ago. Needless to say, that's a long time to wait for a new album. So how is it? Well, like I said, this album is very different. The first track immediately sets you up to understand exactly what you're in for, with the title of Animals and a sound that can only be described as the modern version of a cross between Dire Straits, Tame Impala, and a Looney Tunes animation. Basically, Delicate Steve has moved from soulful warm and a little funky to just plain funky, wacky, and occasionally chill. That's not to say the old sound of Delicate Steve is gone or missing, but if that's all you're looking for, then this album is going to be a bit rocky for you. Tracks like Winners, Together, and This Is Steve each give a little taste of the last few albums. But make no mistake, they're their own songs. And This Is Steve is its own album. It's different, but not in a bad way. The album was definitely made very intentionally, and with this style in mind. The third track on the album, Cartoon Rock, paints a picture of vivid self-awareness, and shows that the band is not afraid to make their music come to life in ways that, frankly, I've never heard before. And really, I think that's the best thing you can do. No band should ever be afraid to be different if it means doing something that's creative and new, and that's exactly what Delicate Steve has done here. Sure, the album is silly, fun, and very bouncy, but the important part is that it's not afraid to be any of these things. Furthermore, the album is very cohesive without being uniform. Any album that can be this tightly written and produced deserves a good amount of praise in itself. This is Steve revels in the absurd, upbeat cartoon rock of its own creation, and I think that's worth celebrating. Overall, I'm going to give this album a 5 on a scale of negative 2 to 7. Is it perfect? No, it has its down moments, as do most instrumental albums, and certainly it's not going to blend well for everyone. But, for those of you who can appreciate something fun, new, and creative, This Is Steve should be a great ride for you. The name of the album is, once again, This Is Steve by Delicate Steve. That is, once more, This Is Steve by Delicate Steve. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Linz, Klesk, Floatstar, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or by sending a tweet to at wknc underscore EOT. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverrated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film The Nice Guys. The Nice Guys was released last year, and while it had Ryan Gosling and Mr. Gladiator himself, Russell Crowe, in the movie, it had a somewhat low-key release. 
the movie was delayed once by the release of another movie. This says as much about what the company releasing the film thinks of the film they released instead as the film that was delayed. They thought it didn't have as high of a potential as the other. I, on the other hand, disagree. I think The Nice Guys was one of the funniest crime movies that has been released in years. It comes off almost as though it were really a strictly serious crime film, but throws in some great slapstick humor and comes off in the end as a hilarious story of one fool and one detective solving another case in a series of events that brings them together. The movie was set in the late 70s and follows two detectives that don't necessarily work together as they solve a case about the abuse of young women. It never stays lighthearted for long and explores some dark and stark violence. A lot of comedies will have extremely upfront violence, such as The Hateful Eight, if you could call that a comedy. I thought the movie was pretty hilarious though, but maybe I just have a sick sense of humor. Anyway, their use of violence had a sense of slapstickiness to it that is stuck around for some time in comedy. It is the same type of humor used in excess by the Three Stooges. Except in the Three Stooges, nobody is hurt for long. This is where the film bends expectations by making people come to actual harm. For the most part in comical situations, we don't expect to see horrible violence, or at least we didn't used to. I think that now comedy is almost expected to have this sort of violence. Well, of course not all comedy. One thing I should mention is that this isn't really a new style of comedy either. Movies like Army of Darkness made use of it as well. A lot of films in the genre of horror do, because it's easy to get away with a zombie being killed and it still being funny. It's a little more difficult with real people, for obvious reasons. A great thing about this movie was its willingness to stray away from convention. It may be a bit of a stretch to say there were no archetypes in the movie, because there definitely were, but they didn't overuse them. They gave you the characters you expected and then played with you based on your assumptions. This is a technique I really love seeing in film. It has a deep understanding of how movies and stories in general are written, and it isn't apologetic for the fact that it abuses this knowledge. The style of comedy is different from that of Will Ferrell's or Seth Rogen's that just plays on absurdity or general goofiness. This movie plays on your assumptions about the characters themselves for the whole time. Sometimes the movie even does this without the intention of getting a laugh out of the audience. The moment I am specifically talking about is when the foolish character played by Ryan Gosling makes a discovery during an investigation that leads to a move forward in said investigation. It's not just any trivial discovery either, as it took some amount of detective skill. Characters that are portrayed in films as fools often might stumble across a discovery like this so that they remain relevant to the story. But instead of just stumbling across it, it was an intentional discovery. This came closer to the end of the movie and to me was a direct nod to the fact that they were using this archetype bending style. It made it apparent it was intentional. One thing about Ryan Gosling in particular I'd like to mention is his choice of roles. They are always in rather unknown films somehow, and he manages to portray a wide variety of characters while still having his own unique style of acting. Maybe it's just his reuse of facial expressions that brings me to this conclusion, and if so, I'm not sure it's completely a good thing, but nevertheless, I enjoy his particular style of acting. If you want some movies of his to compare this one to, look at Only God Forgives or Drive, both directed by Nicholas Winding Refn. Another great movie of his was the recent La La Land, which got a pretty significant amount of Oscar nominations. All of those are pretty distinctly different films, and it's worth mentioning how well Ryan Gosling plays all of the different kinds of roles. The movie as a whole was just generally hilarious and exciting. It's hard to see what's coming in the film, even if it gives you hints and it stays fresh till the credits roll at the end. They combined a lot of unique aspects in film and managed to stay within some pretty traditional borders of storytelling. If you want to watch this movie, there are a multitude of ways to watch it online, and I hope a lot of you end up checking it out. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Iron the Triangle and Snowverated. 
I'm Jake Winters, and I hope you have a fantastic evening.